And we are continuing, as you see, the series from the corner to the closet, and therefore our thoughts are majoring on the Gospel of Matthew and the chapter 6, though we will bring in the verses we read tonight in Luke chapter 11. We find that our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels is recorded as praying on no less than 15 separate occasions. Variety of venues as well, because we find that He prayed in the desert, He prayed up there on the mountain. We have found that on more than one occasion, and mentioned that as well. In the garden He prayed, also at the tomb, the tomb of Lazarus, John 11, He's found in prayer to the Father, and on the cross. Of course, many prayers were offered there, and statements too. So, it's fair to say that our Savior loved to pray, and that in all of the praying, being truly man, He showed that men should be praying. So, He sets that sterling example that we cannot ignore, and also He sets a challenge, and the challenge is simply this. If our Lord prayed, felt the need of prayer, set an example to me and to you, then how much more do you and I need to hold on to the horns of the altar in earnest supplication before God. And it was because he prayed so much that he could press home the point that he did in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18 to verse 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. So, we didn't just come in the midst of ministry and give a lecture or two on prayer, how to pray, the need to pray, the regularity that we ought to engage in in prayer. His life was the most sublime lesson that anybody could ever have received about the subject of prayer. He not only preached on it, but he practiced exactly what he preached. Tonight, we're going to begin properly, and we've done a lot of messages here in introduction, and they have been vital. I know about praying in a secret place, end of the closet, close the door, pray to our Father which is in secret, knowing that He will reward us openly. But then our Lord, He dilates on the subject of what some have called the pearl of prayers. And that's what we have in Matthew 6, the verse 9 through to the verse 13, and also what we looked at briefly there, Luke 11, and the verse 2 through to the verse 4. Before we drill down into some of the detail in the prayer itself, we need to clear the ground a little bit, get the setting, find ourselves in the atmosphere of this particular prayer, and see just out of what context this particular supplication was born. And that's what we're trying to do here tonight. Three things about this particular prayer, and we say so in introduction. And the first thing is concern about this prayer. Concern about this prayer. It may be that we've never heard it described as the pearl of prayer, but we have heard the Lord's Prayer being used to describe it again and again. And it's likely a prayer that we did here at our mother or our father's knee as well, and it may well hold some precious memories for some on account of that. Those folk may well be in heaven today, and that might be one of the ways by which 
We can call to mind their influence in our lives. Their lips, as far as earth is concerned, are silent now, but maybe the prayer they taught us in our childhood, it's living on in the memory, and we might. We might repeat it with reverence and even do so regularly. How many times then the form of words may well have come from our lips over the years. But what we find, and I've discovered it more and more through the years, we have a prayer here given by our Lord, the outline He has drawn to our attention, the framework for prayer, and it may well just be recited mechanically. And that's the danger, that a prayer of this nature can be relegated down to a mere form of words. And as soon as we hear it, we think we know that back to front, inside out. We don't need to keep praying the exact same prayer. And that danger is there that when we repeat it and hear others repeat it, we might be saying the Lord's Prayer without praying the Lord's Prayer. That's the problem. And we know that in many avenues of life, familiarity does breed contempt. I mean, the more you know your friends, sometimes the less respect you tend to pay to them, and you you treat them just as if, well, you're my friend, you ought to be about, and so you're expecting something from them because they are your friend. Or maybe the more you muscle in in the life of your friends, then the the less friendly that relationship may become. And over the course of time, familiarity comes in, makes things steal, and it fragments, and it feels familiarity has bred contempt there. People that live in the Alpine regions of Europe might be opening their shutters every morning and looking out on the huge Alpine peaks that dwarf their little house where they are, and it's breathtaking scenery, but they have seen it every single day that they have lived on the earth, and it means nothing to them, while others are jetting in hundreds of miles, maybe thousands, to come and to look at that, and their mouths are nearly touching the floor in awesome wonder. What's splendid scenery others, visitors, see there. So the danger is, because of the sheer familiarity with these things, those beautiful things around us, they can lose their attraction very quickly. J.D. Jones said it is one of the familiar things of life, and our very familiarity with it may have dulled our sense of its beauty. And what he's talking about, of course, is this prayer that's before us tonight. He went on in his quotation to say, frequent usage may have dimmed our perception of its sweet simplicity and its soaring spirituality. There is the danger of its becoming on our lips a mere form of words. There is the danger of its becoming, instead of a real, throbbing, living prayer, a cold, heartless, formal utterance. And I must hold my hand up right here on this particular point, because the prayer has for me been devalued over the years by familiarity, and maybe more so, and this is what springs to mind again and again, by the way in which ecumenists seem to monopolize it. And so I have, on occasions, almost got to the stage when I hear it begin that I'm thinking this is just straight out of the ecumenist 
prayer book. The Lord's prayer is so often found on the lips of the unconverted and on the lips of those who are compromised that it becomes gravel on our tongue. It becomes a loud, deafening symbol in our ears. It weighs like lead on our heart, and we probably have little desire to use it because our association is it's a dull chant by dead men in the middle of a dark cathedral. Nevertheless, there is beauty in this prayer, and there is life as well. And there is, of course, our Lord, we must remind ourselves, is the one who has given these instructions. There is wonderful instruction in it and tremendous value about it as well. And I'm trusting that over the next number of weeks as we dredge our way into the depths of it, that we will find beauty and life and instruction and count it to be of extreme value as well. I know and I've made the point already that we've been here many, many a time and heard it so many times through. We're not going to be saying anything profound, therefore, about the prayer, and certainly nothing that hasn't already been said one million times. But as one has said, the next best thing to saying a new thing is to say an old thing in a new way. In fact, the secret of originality It's not so much that we are discovering something new and digging a gold nugget out of the ground that nobody else has ever found, but rather the secret of originality is making old truth real and vital and alive and relevant. And that's what we want to do with this particular passage so we're not running after originality, but what we do want is to push relevance upon our heart and our mind and our own current situation as well. You know the name Joseph Turner, maybe more familiarly known as William Turner, great landscape artist of the 19th century. And a lady said to him one day, I never see the kind of things you paint in your pictures. I mean, I'm looking at that landscape, but I'm not picking up in the landscape what you have evidently seen. And he said to her, Don't you wish you did, ma'am? The problem was not with the artist, of course, not with the landscape. The problem was with the lady's vision. She was looking and seeing everything the artist did, but not picking up on the detail that his eye was picking out. Again, it's the old thing, glories, wonderful things, splendors that are so largely ignored by so many. And what was unheeded by the crowd, and what was often overlooked by the crowd, Turner specialized in placing in a prominent position in those great landscapes of his. Now, what we want to do is we want to realize the meaning of this particular prayer. We want as well ourselves in our own heart and mind to feel its power as we delve into Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13, go into Luke 11, the verse 2 to 4, and also we want to grasp something of the sweep of its demands. 
so that what we have here are a series of petitions in the most familiar of all prayers that we can shake the dust of long years of familiarity off them. We can wrestle them out of the grip of those ecumenists that misuse and abuse it, and we can emerge with this prayer and our hearts clinging to it and our minds understanding it and feeling, you know, it's real, and it's fresh, and it's vital, and it says something important to my heart. So, therefore, when we use these words, granted to us in grace by our Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be simply repeating the Lord's Prayer, but we will really and truly pray. So, that's the concern about this prayer, and I would imagine you'll share that substantially with what I've said. Not only the concern about the prayer, think of the circumstances of this prayer. Where do we find that? Well, we have to turn to Luke and the chapter 11, which is why we turn to that passage tonight. Luke chapter 11 and the verse 1, and that paints in the background to the prayer. We discover there our Lord Jesus Christ had Himself been praying. He had taken himself away from all of the noise and the bustle and the, the hassle of the town and all of the confusing signs over there, and he had taken himself onto the glorious solitude of a mountain top. And during the solemn hush, the silence of the night, he prayed. And it came to pass. Luke 11 and 1, that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased. Interesting little word in there, ceased. An old Puritan commentator, John Trapp, said he had been tugging hard with God in prayer, laboring even to lassitude, and I'm sure you haven't heard that word for a long time. Uh, maybe that's the first appearance of it. It means simply weariness. And Trapp is saying the word that we have here, when he ceased, means he rested, he paused, he took a break here, and in that break, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Nobody can speak much with God. Into the closet, close the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. When we do what we've been exhorted to do in the earlier part of Matthew chapter 6, nobody can do that. Speak and spend time with God without showing the signs that they have enjoyed high fellowship, the best that a man or woman could ever enjoy this side of eternity. Moses went up into the mountain, came down again into the camp of Israel, and the people noted, even though he didn't realize it himself, that his face was beaming, shining with the glory of God. It had caught, it was reflecting some of that divine glory that he saw on the mountaintop. John Gibson Patton missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebrides, he tells in his autobiography how his own godly father would withdraw every single day to talk with the Lord. And then, as children, well, he and his brother 
who's actually buried in Belfast. In fact, he's buried in Londonderry. He ministered in Belfast. Check out Malone Presbyterian sometime, and you'll find a memorial there to him, but he's buried up in the city cemetery in Londonderry along with the family that he married into. But John Gibson Patton and his brother, they used to notice when their father came out of this contact with the Lord, there was in their eyes a beautiful light in their father's face as he emerged from that daily interview with God. We've all seen multiple pictures of the old halos, where people are painted, they've got a halo around the head of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Mary, and the rest of their saints, and I'm sure you're not impressed. But I believe the face of our Lord Jesus Christ here, at this time, on this mount, when the disciples were around Him, would have signaled the kind of sacred communion that He had enjoyed with the Father. There would have been a radiance about His face, a calm upon His countenance that was announcing to them, I was in holy fellowship with God. And don't we need and crave that? We know the trials broke like waves on a rocky headland in terms of the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of those waves, the malignant hatred of the Pharisees. Another wave, the continual blundering of His disciples. The fickle responses of the people round about as He cries after some, will ye also go away? Because many were doing so. The unreasonable expectations of those crowds that gathered. And then we have the inveterate hardness of those self-righteous sinners who were never going to bow the knee to Him. How they tried Him again and again. And as He goes up the mountain, weary and worn and tried and tired. But when he emerges from this time of communion with the Father, how calm and peaceful and strong he was, and how he's telling us, you need that kind of time regularly in your life as well. His disciples, they noticed the change, and therefore that precipitated their request. So we have in terms of the Savior here, we have what He did on that mountain. And then the disciples are asking, Lord, teach us to pray. We've just seen prevailing prayers. We want to be taught how to do the same. And so we have a pattern here. William Cooper said, what various hindrances we meet in coming to the mercy seat. Yet, who that knows the worth of prayer, but wishes to be often there. Prayer makes the dark and cloud withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder that Jacob saw, gives exercise to faith and love, brings every blessing from above. Well, if that's true, William Cooper, then we want to see the same things, the same results, just like the disciples look for the same results from what the Savior had done in prayer, and then the performance that came after prayer, they were looking for serenity. They were looking for strength themselves. And we need, do we not, to be convinced of the supreme value of prayer. People around us don't think 
that prayer is such a wonderful thing until they see results coming from it. Where are they going to see those results? They will see the effects of prayer in us. And if they see it in us, then they will put a value that they didn't formerly upon the whole practice of prayer. And when they can look in and see that we are calm, and see that we're happy, and see that we're unswerving, and see that we're strong even in the middle of difficulties and worries and the cares of this life, then they'll start asking, what's the secret? And they'll not be happy until they find what the secret is. And so we have here in Luke 11, the verse 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples, they were looking for the same secret of power. So we first of all consider tonight the concern about this prayer. Then secondly, we've just looked at the circumstances of this particular prayer, the background to it. And then finally tonight, the confession before this prayer, the confession before this prayer. These words that we have in Luke 11 and 1, Lord, teach us to pray. What are they but a confession of inability, an acknowledgement of need? That's what they are. Sometimes the question is asked. We might even ask the question ourselves in moments of despair and doubt. Why do we pray? Why do men pray? We might as well ask, why does the song thrush out there sing? Why does the eagle rise and soar up into the endless blue? The song thrush sings because it was made to sing, and the eagle will soar because its wings have been made for lofty flight. And we pray because man has been made for worship and for prayer. Teach us to pray. It should be an instinctive thing, an automatic response from that seeking soul. God put breath into our nostrils. Way back in Genesis, we read the history that we might put that breath that He has given back into His ears in supplication in the middle of our need. We need communion with God to sustain us, to satisfy us. We absolutely need to pray. And so wherever we go in the world, people are praying. Most times misguided. The African may well worship some kind of a fetish. The Hindu could throw himself down before a plethora of idols. We have the Islamist, and sometimes, as we mentioned the other week, praying by machinery every bit as much as the Roman Catholic will do with his Hail Marys and that not. We have the nominal Protestant, and he might well join in the chanting of some vain repetition, but there's this feeling that's upon them. We need to do something in this issue of prayer. A little child, when it's born, what's the method of drawing attention? Well, you'll have peeked 
looked over the side of that carry cot, and you will have seen the very sight you didn't really want to see because you felt it wasn't that long since you'd already seen this very thing, and there's this big toothless hole that's looking up at you, stretching the width and the length of the carry cot, and it's uttering this right of sound, and you're thinking, how can you generate such a sound like that? Well, he or she feels a need. They cry for the need to be met. It's an automatic response. There's nothing more natural than the cry. And you never have had to whisper into the ear of any newborn or young infant, oh, by the way, when you want something, I tell you what to do, just open your mouth and let it sound. If you don't get what you're looking for immediately, but it'll take about five minutes for the old bottle warmer at least to warm up and do its job. Then turn up the volume and let's really know that you're looking for something. We don't need to do that because crying, lifting up the sign, turning the knob of the volume just comes naturally. Prayer should come as naturally, does it? Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air, his watchword at the gates of death, he enters heaven with prayer, and here is a little band of disciples, and they have tuned in to our Lord's wavelength here, and they've been awed by His power with God, and they're feeling, we need, we need to be taught in this art of prayer, because we need leadership right here and guidance. A confession of inability teach us to pray. Not only that, we have a confession here of ignorance as well. A confession of ignorance. Teach us to pray, they ask. Prayer they know is a necessity, but how were they to pray? And what are they going to pray for? What we have here in Luke 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray, is very similar to what we have back in the book of Micah, the chapter 6 and the verse 6, where the words are, wherewith shall I come before the Lord, and by myself before the high God. That was the difficulty. What do we do? How do we pray? What words do we bring? What approach do we make here? The disciples realized. It's implicit within their request. They realized there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. There are some things that we could be right in, other things that we're definitely going to be wrong in, and our Lord, doesn't He take some of those and like skittles knocks them down on the lead up to what He's saying in Matthew chapter 6. Don't be praying like this. This is not the way you do it. And so our Lord is sifting out the wrong practice and leaving the correct one. It has been said, prayer is the key to the treasure house of God but it will lie useless in a man's hand until he is shown how to use it. And so this confession of ignorance meets us here in the face. Lord, teach us to pray. We've already alluded to what people do in various nations across the face of this earth, using machines and beads and prayers for the dead and prayers for animals and people way, way, way off the mark all over the globe. And so the disciples here are very keen to sort out right at the beginning the approach to God, the etiquette of prayer coming into God's court. Lord, lead us here. Guide us. Tell us 
how to enter into the presence of the great king, what to pray for, and with what effect. If a man is invited to see the king, then he's going to comply with all the formalities of that court etiquette. He'll not want to stand out, and it could be a formidable, rather demanding task. And so the disciples here are asking, Lord, what's the etiquette in approaching thy court? Teach us to pray. Do we need an intermediary at this throne, or can we just go directly? Do we need an introduction to Him that is sitting upon the throne? By what name should we address Him? What should we pray for? Lord, teach us to pray, because we're confessing here we don't know how. And our Lord graciously instructs their ignorance. And it's in answer to their confession here, in answer to it, that our Lord teaches His disciples how to pray. You don't need an intermediary. Go boldly to that throne yourselves. He that sits on it knows you by name, knows you by need. Address Him as your Father. Ignorance as to approach, ignorance as to appeals. What do we put into our petitions? Lord, teach us to pray. We need guidance here as well. Oftentimes, let's face it, we don't know what's best for us. And we can beat all around the bush in prayer, but not hit the main things. Miss the big branches. Miss the things that should really be staring us in the eye in terms of, here is your real need. And we're like the woman looking at the painting, not seeing the vital things. The fact of the matter is, if God wished to be unkind, really unkind to us, He would just simply answer the prayers that we offer on occasions. Because sometimes we're asking for things that are going to do us harm. And it would be a really bad job if He answered that prayer in the way that we offered it. Maybe a child asks for something, and it looks pretty good, and it's attractive to him. Say, they find a pen knife. You know one of those Swiss Army knives that opens every which way, and all kinds of dangerous blades on it, and you're thinking as soon as you see it reaching it, no, 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 you can't have that. Give that over here, and you'll be telling them absolutely no, and you're just spoiling their entire day because the very thing that they wanted the most it's the thing that's going to cause them the most danger and harm. And we approach God's throne of grace as children, often not realizing some of the things that we're asking for. They appear to be right at first sight, but they're actually the wrong things altogether. And God has spared you and me from havoc and destruction on many an occasion when we haven't even realized it. I can't think of the subject without my mind going over to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 and verse 6, where he's praying for an extension of life in Isaiah 38 and the verse 5, and he's given 15 years the grant of grace. During that time, a son, Manasseh, was born. Manasseh went on to live in vileness and wickedness for 55 long, excruciating years on the throne of Judah. Hezekiah's life was extended, but her many lives were ended by his wicked son as a result of that extension. We know not what we should pray for as we ought. How true that line in Romans 8 and 26 is. 
Lord, teach us to pray. Brings us right back to that, and He will teach us. Read on in Romans 8, 26 and 27, and the Spirit, He is prompting us as to what we should pray for because He knows what is the mind and the will of God, and He will guide us, and that's what the disciples were looking for here. We need guidance to pray according to the will of God, and He will teach us what to pray for. He will show us how He petitioned, how He poured out the contents of a soul before the Lord, and He'll remind us at the end of your praying, pray like Christ, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And He will give the assurance, John 15 and 16, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, He shall give it you. Final sub-point here under this confession before the prayer, there's a confession of insufficiency. Lord, teach us to pray. Does that mean they'd never prayed before? Of course these men will have prayed before, and probably, probably many a time, maybe every day of their lives. They were Jews. Jews were very fastidious and conscientious about praying, and so a loyal Jew would have been praying three times a day and retiring into the closet for their devotions, their worship of God. And we're assuming these disciples would have been good Jews, strict Jews, punctilious in their regard for every point of the ritual of their religion. And so they would have prayed many times before when they cry, Lord, teach us to pray. What's this about? They knew that their prayers never had the impact that they've just seen from the Savior's prayers. And they wanted to pray like Him. The old prayers, the old rituals, the old repetitions no longer were giving satisfaction to them. And after hearing their Lord pray and listening to this doctrine and seeing the effects of His prayers, those old stereotypes, prayers lost their impact and lost their power and lost their beauty, and they thought, we can't offer that any longer. First line of a well-known ballad, well, in previous years anyway, started, I cannot sing the old songs. A change had happened in that person's life, that singer. And the old songs now were inappropriate, even impossible, and like the disciples, maybe like a preacher and he's preached a sermon, and he looks at sermon notes maybe sometime later, and he thinks, whoa, that is a horrible message. How did anybody ever listen to that, and how did I even think it was worth listening to when I first preached it, and vow never to look at those notes again? Once we get a new vision of God, once our soul is kindled with heavenly fire and love, we will pray differently, and you and I know that because we can spend days where it feels as if the heaven is like brass and we're getting nowhere. But when we have that communion with God and our souls catch fire, then try to stop us, pray, because we're so enjoying it. Lord, teach us to pray. Final thought, and it's one I'm sure that you've heard many, many times, people will come to you and they'll say, you know, why pray? Because prayer is never answered. Prayer is never answered. This whole, the pearl of prayers, 
gives the lie to that statement. Right up. Did you ever think that the Lord's Prayer, as we called it, was given in answer to prayer? The disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, and our Lord answered their prayer with this prayer. And this answer to prayer has met the needs of multitudes of God's true people as they've saturated their souls in the male elements of this prayer, and they've fleshed it out in their own lives and gone down these lines using them as signposts and guidelines. It has encouraged thousands, if not millions of hearts from that day to now. Those disciples then could have struck up the chorus that we know I believe God answers prayer. I am sure God answers prayer. Look, I have proved God answers prayer. Glory to His name, and may we do the same, the exact same, for Jesus' glory. And as their prayer was answered, may ours be answered too.